Welcome to Pensive Series. Jane Barrett is the founder and CEO of Goldbeam. She's a long-term investor and champion of financial literacy. Jane spent more than 20 years driving growth for Fortune 500 companies, including many financial services institutions. Her frustration with the disconnect between personal consumption, which drives the economy, and personal finance, from which only the wealthy benefit, inspired her to become a registered investment advisor to apply a more empowered, personal, and data-driven approach to investing. In this episode, we talk with Jane about her journey as a financial advisor and the many lessons she has learned as an investor. Uh, where, where did you grow up? Melbourne, Australia. Wow. Deep in the suburbs of Melbourne. How is it to grow up there? Um, kind of bucolic and kind of boring. So perfect, wonderful outdoors childhood. Um, I was one of eight kids, so that formed a lot of my attitudes towards money and risk-taking. And, uh, yeah, I left, I left with a one-way ticket when I was 18. Went back for a little while, but I've basically been a... An expat, pretty much my whole adult life. Quite the adventure. Quite the adventure, yes. How is like school in Australia? School's amazing. School is actually amazing. Um, I had I saw from your background. You went to the LSE, is that you? yeah. Yeah. So I had done a year of college and I applied to the LSE when I was in London. They're like, mm, we don't recognise the Australian educational system, so you're going to have to do your A levels. <laughs> wow, that's harsh. Harsh, I'll say. They invented this, the yeah, system there. <laughs> British people are peculiar. They are. <laughs> and then, uh, I, how did you like think through that adventure, like moving to the United States? So I came here at 18 as a swim instructor for a summer. Mm. I pressed my face up against the city of New York and said, this is my home, but I don't really want to live here poor or single, which I was both at the time because I was 18. Um, so I did go back to Australia and finished my college years, um, worked for a little while and then transferred to Asia. So I basically spent most of my formative years in Asia Pacific, again, a lot of impact on my attitudes towards money and risk taking. And then I got to New York, finally made the full circle back again, uh, 13 years ago. Wow. Yeah. So can you, can you tell us, uh, maybe a formative experience that shaped um, shaped you? Just in terms of career, In terms of your life and life. sort of how you thought um, about life? So a couple of things. I loved traveling alone young. I think that was, um, it definitely changes your risk muscles. So leaving with next to no money, 18 years old on a one-way ticket. Um, I highly recommend it because all of a sudden you realize how big the world is and how hard you're going to have to work to make an impact. Um, I think another thing was I had, uh, after I'd come back from that trip, my youngest brother was diagnosed with leukemia and he died a few years later. And there is no place on earth that is worse. Well, there probably is, but, but a childhood cancer ward is pretty damn awful. So when you see the worst, it puts everything else into perspective. You know, everyone has problems every day. There's no little babies dying today. So it's a good day. <laughs> And then how did you think about your career? So you went to university, and mm -hmm. how did you like start that chapter? So growing up, I didn't really know a lot of white-collar people. Um, you know, my mom was a teacher, my dad's an electrician, like I said, one of eight kids. Um, big family. Big family. So, yes, it, uh, 
It was very much an adventure every day. But um, one thing, you know, in Australia in the 70s and 80s, the advertising was amazing, right? It was actually better than the programming on TV. So um, that seemed like something that could be fun. Um, I was a pretty good writer. So I'm like, okay, I'll try that. And I got into a very sort of small and prestigious um, course, which at that point was trade school. Advertising was considered a trade rather than a profession, which is pretty awesome. Um, and I'd set myself a goal of running a Madison Avenue agency. That's my goal. I'm going to go to New York and I'm going to run a Madison Avenue agency. Um, as, you know, I progressed through my career, um, I'm very grateful for the time I spent in Asia. I think, again, learning, I think that would be the third formative story, but, you know, being in Asia in the late 90s where you had SARS, currency crises, property crises, like, it was an incredibly turbulent time. And, you know, I was fortunate to be a, a boss very young. Um, again, learning on the job in times of incredible economic distress. Um, there is no better training ground for that. <laughs> there is no MBA that can teach you. I would call my colleagues around the world. I'm like, so people are afraid of dying when they come to work. I mean, technically, SARS isn't anywhere near us, but what should I do? And... Yeah, my colleagues were useless. They're like, yeah, I, there is no handbook for that. And I'm like, okay. What makes it <laughs> more exciting? <laughs> Which makes it all the more exciting, exactly. What, like, how is it living in Asia? Um, you know, you grew up in Australia mm. and then you lived there. Like, how was that lifestyle? Um, it, was, it was, I lived in uh, Kuala Lumpur, then Singapore, and then Hong Kong. And all three are incredibly different. And then I had um, regional role out of Hong Kong. So I spent my time between, like, Japan and India and New Zealand and you can't get three more different countries on the face of this earth than those three countries. So it was incredibly stimulating. Um, it was an amazing learning experience. I think uh, it was a little disappointing, and there are other career expats, and we tend to talk about this a lot, is that you really don't get credit for being a global person, right? Because I think the view from the US is a global person who gets on a plane a lot and swans in and swans out and goes to the hotel meeting and leaves. Whereas, you know, a global person who can get into a local culture and understand what's really going on and make an impact versus, you know, a two-day meeting sort of thing. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, living in Asia was amazing. I still miss it. I, I absolutely loved um, the life there. I loved the pace. I think the um, it was truly formative from a financial perspective in that... Uh, Amongst the Chinese diaspora especially, it's a very different approach to money, right? There is no guilt, there's no shame, it's openly talked about. I think in the first week I was in Malaysia, someone asked me to my face, what's your salary? What are you earning? I was like, oh my God, they're asking me this because I'm like the white person that just showed up. But it actually <laughs> wasn't that, it was just that's what people would ask each other. Everybody knew what everyone else was earning, we would talk openly about bonuses and what they were being spent on and are you going to buy an apartment, how much are you going to spend? And it was... At the beginning, incredibly challenging from a, you know, that sort of weird Victorian-esque Western approach toward money. Yeah. <laughs> but then by the time I left, like, you know, seven or eight years later, I'm like, this is amazing because it's, it's transparency. Right? There's, yeah, there is exactly. no weirdness. And frankly, I think there's, when I arrived in New York, it was absolutely astounding to me that I would try and have the same conversations I would have with my friends in Hong Kong. And it, it was just, it was weird. I'd say, you know, I'm thinking of buying more Apple stock. What do you think? And I would get this, 
doing a hand motion. You know, people, they did not want to have the conversation. I'm like, wait, okay, all right, so well, how do you invest your money? They're like, oh, I don't do that. You earn $300,000 a year. Why are you not investing? This is crazy. And so I sort of made it my personal mission to become like this proxy investment advisor to my friends and colleagues. And, you know, if I was doing performance reviews or if I was, you know, I would be incredibly uh, non-PC and ask people, you know, either, you know, how are you taking care of yourself? How do you approach money? Um, I still don't know if there's something in the HR handbook, whether I can or I can't ask that. But at any case, it was, it was a very telling to me about how committed people were to their own sort of financial health and well-being and you know if you're financially healthy you can give a lot more at work you just can if you're you know worried about paying your bills it gets you know it's just it's a giant distraction and so you know I would make terrible jokes to people I'd be like oh I'm so glad you're from a rich family and they'd be all horrified I'm like I'm not from a rich family like then don't be buying those shoes no one should be buying that but you know I knew what people meant so and and then how did you like develop that that initial like impulse and then love for investing? So it, it you know I mean it's a lifelong journey and I think that's what we tell our clients as well is when you see the impact over time you can't tell a beginner there's going to be a huge impact on your life you can really only see it as you go but um, you know the first stock I bought was a thousand dollars worth of Apple in like the mid nineties and sold it the year after for 2000 thought I was a genius but anyway um but you know Apple did very well by me over the years um but that when you have you know I both had great advice from a boss who had said rather harshly no one ever got rich from working no one ever got rich from their salary it's like oh my god I'm, you're right no one gets rich from salary. Yeah. You, you know you have to have equity of some you can, sort you can marry rich there's that. Um, but it was, you know, that was definitely part of the ignition. But the other part was just to see that all of a sudden, you know, I had options in life, that I could change countries, I could change careers. Like, I had a financial base that I was comfortable with, that I was like, you know what, I can, I can speak up at work and be a jerk if I feel like it, because the worst you can do is fire me, and I'll be fine. And I think that is so liberating. And it really is a precursor. Like one of the, the things you know, we worry about a lot is when you look at um, amongst Gen Y, you know, it's like almost 40% of them are 1099 workers, contract workers or freelancers. So they're not going to experience even what Gen X got with 401ks and retirement plans. It's like literally on their own. So um, it is a great feeling to be able to build your own you know, build your own base and not be reliant on somebody else to, you know, take a bit here and a bit there every year, build their base rather than yours. How do you, how do you think about investing? So I am a very big fan of the Warren Buffett and the Peter Lynch approach of, you know, keep it simple, invest in what you know, buy and hold, buy and then keep on buying in and just be pragmatic rather than emotional. And I think that's one of the hardest things is to take the emotion out. And, you know, we will tell our clients, it's fine, just check in once a week. You don't need to check any more than that. What are you going to do? Right? So um, I, I truly believe that sort of that growth mindset and investing, again, they're terrible words, but there's no other words to describe them, um, can and should be a part 
of a cultural conversation that just doesn't happen unless you're an investment banker or you're in the business. And I think that's, if you can unlock the way, you know, the professionals look at the market as just, it's a tool. It's an opportunity to grow what you have, put it to work in a very unemotional way. Um, I think that's the, the key. But I also look at it completely from the other perspective as well in that, you know, the beneficiaries of people's hard work tend to be shareholders, right? You know, you work really hard to earn this money and you spend it with these companies and it ends up in fund managers and shareholders' pockets. And I think there is a responsibility from even a company and private entity perspective around, you know, rewarding the people who make you rich. That's not the shareholders, it's your customers. And and how do you decide how you invest, like, the, the, the companies you source and mm-hmm. how, how, what's your like philosophy behind that? So our, we have a hook that is, again, based on the Peter Lynch, invest in what you know. And instead of just making you tell me what you like, what brands and companies you like, um, we give people the option of sharing their transaction history with us. So show me where you shop. We built software that converts merchant codes to ticket symbols. So if you shop at Banana Republic, it'll come up as the gap. Um, and then we built an algorithm that basically rates all of those companies. And if you think of the you know 5,000 public entities in the US, it's really only like 600 that will show up regularly as you know identifiable brand-led companies that people interact with on a day-to-day basis. So we believe, I mean, we still believe in the power of ETFs and funds as a great basis for a portfolio. But like I said, if you say to a beginner, you should buy an ETF, they don't know what that is. They go away and it's like, okay, now I feel stupid, so I'm not going to do anything. So, you know, we put together portfolios that are on a core satellite model, which is, you know, core ETFs, um, low-cost funds, and then the satellites are equities that rate well that that um, people are interested in. And having that as a way to make you more familiar with investing and a way to make you care, right? It's very easy to track what's going on and care with Amazon. They had the biggest Q4 ever or they've just released Prime Plus or whatever it is. And if you can get intellectually involved in a company that you're financially involved with, like that's just a whole nother layer of understanding the economy. And, you know, for too many people, they've been, you know, they drive the economy with their spend, but they really haven't been included as beneficiaries. You said um, invest in what you know. Mm-hmm. How do you know that you know everything there is to need, like there is to know? There is no such thing as knowing what you need to know. No, it's investing what you know in terms of companies and brands you're familiar with. Um, we do uh, a very, you know, we don't shy away from talking about things like debt profiles and revenue and PE. So we're st- we are very much education first. So we say invest in what you know and learn as you go. So invest in what you know is um, here's a set of companies and you can explore around as well. But we basically do um, what we think is the world's first like emoji-based stock analyzer. <laughs> so, you know, why do we like them? Why is this a good company or not a good company? And then drill into some of the fundamentals, like the actual financial fundamentals of revenue and debt and growth. Um, we'll lay out what would you have now if you'd invested $1,000 five years ago, which is always good to just get your head around where they are on a growth trajectory. Um, But we also open up data in a way to our community that I think is quite innovative. Because people have shared their consumption history with us, we can actually see, like, 
how many brands have you shopped with from this public company, right? What's your average transaction size? Um, and then from the community, same, how many people have invested in this stock? How many people have bookmarked this stock? What's the average transaction size? So you can start to get a sense of, you know, it's not just what the analysts say. And frankly, no analysts agree with each other anyway. So that was a big, that was a big, um, we were looking at incorporating analyst ratings into our algorithm, but it's just like, no one agrees. So there's really no point. <laughs> well, the stock market often information is ruination and what everybody knows is not really worth much. So okay. how do you make sure um, you, you recognize you know, things that are underappreciate, underappreciate or not appreciated yet by, by the market? So we're not, we're not looking to beat the index, and I think this is trying to find um, undervalued stocks. And we will look at, I mean, we will look at PE and forward PE and talk about, you know, we think this stock is undervalued. But, um, and that's just based on their financial fundamentals. But we also couch that with there are no future facts, you know. When this, when the tide goes down, it goes down for every all of the ships. So um, we're very pragmatic in terms of it is better to be in the market than not, and you know it's it's buy and hold unless we what we do because each equity and these equities and funds they get a rating, and if there is a big move, if one was rated an A and it suddenly got rated a D, we will actually give a heads up to the clients that are holding. Say. So, but what would you tell, like, how would you create a world where people are empowered to understand on their own how to invest, how to think about these things? And, and you know, there's a bunch of people who, like, you know, if you're a doctor, you're very busy with your profession, mm -hmm. so you don't have the time. But, like, we, we live in a world where, you know, all these fund managers, they don't outperform the market, mm -hmm. and they get paid huge salaries, and it's like, it's like, this, it's like this middleman that doesn't provide value. And, and I think oftentimes consumers, they know so much about particular things that then they can invest in it. And mm -hmm. it goes back to understanding, like understanding something really well. Yeah. So how, 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 do you, how, do you, uh, how would you empower in, in individual investors? Well, I mean, this is why we built Golby. This is why we built it as a digital platform versus humans that give face-to-face -face advice. In that one of the big insights we had was... People want to learn, but they don't want to read. You know, I want to get better, but I'm really busy, you know, doing what it is I do every day. And so we've seen a lot of success with just bite-sized learning and bite-sized outreach, just twice-weekly emails, what's going on in the market, what's going on with this particular company, and wrapping up fairly sophisticated investing concepts like market cap. Let's talk about market cap, but instead of making it a very dry definition, we'll talk about the story of, you know, when Oprah bought 10% of Weight Watchers. Like, what did it do? They had their earnings, what has it done? And so it's, you know, in two minutes, someone can get a snapshot of a company, they can get a sense of, you know, some sophisticated concepts, and uh, they are also left with a, well, you will usually say, you know, this is a good one to put in a practice portfolio and watch. Um, again, as a fiduciary, we can't make, you should buy this today, <laughs> statements. But um, for individuals, if you think about, how much time is spent following sport or fashion or movie stars or the Kardashians or whatever your thing is and how little time is spent following your money, like, then it's context. It's like, oh, okay. And, you know, we do a lot of work with a financial therapist in terms of guiding some of our content and giving us... Financial uh, therapist? It's a thing, yes. It's a real thing. And it's actually kind of genius. Um, 
so many so much of people's approach towards money is wrapped up in their relationship with their family and it often does need unpacking and I mean it's a great um, it's a great concept to go through your own family tree and think of you know oh there was a drunk uncle that squandered millions or whatever it was and just look at how your own attitudes and outlook have been formed by your own family situation but but this therapist that we work with has a, a brilliant technique in terms of her um, guidance to people in terms of just setting time and even if it's you know 30 minutes on a Saturday morning and do these three things do that until you've mastered that and then you do more and do more and just incorporating it as a practice as you would your own physical health you'll go to the gym you'll prioritize cooking healthy food how do you prioritize your financial health and investing is a big part of that so what do you think are some are some uh, unhealthy financial habits people <laughs> um, I think the scariest one is the statistic that when new credit is opened up to an individual who already has credit card debt, it's usually gone within two months. Like, that is by far the unhealthiest. They go go even more into debt? So say you have a $15,000 limit on your credit card and you've got $15,000 on your credit card and so, you know, the card opens up another $2,000 for you, you will fill it. Really? Um, that you see, is the, the problem is that, that banks are incentivized in, in a way which is unhealthy to the consumer. A hundred percent, yes. A very large part of their revenue that then goes to pay the fund managers who don't perform the market <laughs> um, is the you know is this cycle of how expensive it is to service debt. Like the average American household spends nine percent of their income on debt servicing. Like that's insane. And I think that reliance on debt and the easy availability, and there's more and more coming online with marketplace lenders and that, uh, you know, you've now got a generation of people who are paying back money they've never even earned yet for stuff that they bought long ago. Um, so that's that's one. Um, I think the short-termism, and I have a lot to blame for this, having been in marketing for 20 years, is, you know, the buttons that you push to make people feel good and get a good dopamine release tend to be around having great experiences. You know, you go on a great vacation, you buy something that you really love and the consequences of that are always disconnected. I'll get the I'll get the bill next month. And so, you know, having more and more easy way to pay for things, you know, if you're Apple Watch or, you know, Bitcoin, automatic transfers, whatever it is, like that, making money less real to people is relatively unhealthy in terms of how hard you work to get that money, right? You think of how you spend your time. You spend this giant chunk of time earning the money and then a fairly sizable chunk spending it, you know, whether for pleasure or not. And sort of the last point in the pyramid, occasionally you'll think about saving, but the last point is the growing of the money and um, being able to put how hard you work for the money in context of how hard you make the money work for you like that is still such a big disconnect for such a large proportion of the com- of the population. So, how can more people sort of get themselves on a path towards financial independence? Especially if you look at, um, you know, a lot of innovation is happening in private markets, mm-hmm. um, right? So, like if you look at most companies that come come out of the valley, um, by the time they're like, you know, on a public stock exchange like the Nasdaq or the New York Stock Exchange. Um, it's, you know, like, let's think about Uber. It's, like, worth, like, 70-plus billion dollars now. Um, 
So like the appreciation, I mean, even if it goes to 300, is, is 3x. Mm -hmm. And so like, like a lot of the public can participate, uh, you know, in those sort of, in that innovation. Yeah. So, so how do you sort of see that sort of being solved? Um, it's coming. The Jobs Act does now allow for sort of minor um, investments in private companies. You know, my ideal as an investment advisor would to be able to put together a portfolio that isn't just stocks and funds, but also includes private investments and maybe annuities and maybe, you know, an insurance product. And, you know, that's, I think that's where it starts to get really interesting when you can actually see a diverse portfolio that makes sense to you. Because you still have to shop a la carte. I'm going to go for you for that and an insurance company over there and over there I might buy an annuity and through my work I've got my 401k and, you know, your life is kind of messy. On the other end of the scale, um, there is a deep fear that, you know, people will put their the only $5,000 that they have, put it into what they think is the next Uber. Like, private investments are way on the outer range of risk like just in terms of general failure rate. So, you know, the guidance that we give is, you know, if you're in a good place with debt, if you've got some savings, if you've got your, if you're maxing out your 401k and you've got a portfolio, knock yourself out and put some money into some private investments, but check those boxes first, right? Jumping from, you know, nowhere, a savings account straight into private investments, it's incredibly right. dangerous. I mean, it's it's a lottery at that point, or a casino. But this seems to work. I mean, the most successful investors haven't really diversified on their path to becoming wealthy. They have, like, they have developed a strategy where they they know something and they understand something very mm -hmm. well, and then they leverage it. Take mm -hmm. George Soros, who, mm -hmm. like, broke the back of England. Mm -hmm. He leveraged, I think, 1.5x of his fund. Yeah. Uh, Warren Buffett, yeah. he, he talks about diversification he doesn't like that. I mean, yeah. I don't want to like you know, put words in his mouth and generalize. And um, but it, it seems like a lot of successful investors, uh, you know, diversify once they're like. It's almost like if you want to be rich, don't diversify. And yeah. then once you're rich, to maintain the wealth, yeah. you diversify. And and so I think, uh, how can we build structures where individuals can leverage their expertise and leverage what they're good at mm -hmm. and then combine that with investment in some way mm -hmm. to you know to to maximize basically their their uniqueness yeah i mean i 100 percent agree with you i mean i built my own portfolio because i'd worked in the tech space so i was able to build you know some real wealth just based on what i saw every day um the reality for most people they can absolutely do that Right? They need to just get over that first hump of getting started and starting, you know, starting small. I think the, you know, you couched your question with uh, how do people get rich and I think that's also somewhat of a misnomer for most people. Like, there really is only one Warren Buffett. I mean, many others have tried, but, and that was also a lifetime. has been, a, you know, 50, 60 years that you can look back and now say this is how it worked. But... Uh, from a diversification perspective, weirdly, Warren Buffett also said that, you know, if he was stuck, you know, buying a portfolio for his wife today, he'd just buy the S&P. So it's, you know, he's, he's also contradicting his own investment philosophy somewhat. Yeah. So if you could have dinner with any investor in history? Oh, wow. I would have to be Warren. Yeah? Yeah. He I just, know these days he auctions off dinners. Right? I know. You have to pay for it. I know, it. exactly. Bummer. <laughs> what would you talk about? Um, I think I would talk about what he's excited about. 
like what's next for him like he is he has such a great passion and I think he is different from most of Wall Street in that he gets humans and he gets what gets people excited right and you know I would tell my colleagues within the marketing world I'm like you know you guys know more about what's going on in these companies than most Wall Street analysts right you know more like A is students of pop culture and B as consumers and C as practitioners, you get to see so much and learn so much, but it's just not done through an investment filter. And I think Warren Buffett has that amazing sort of prescience to be able to see across what appeals to humans and what's going on inside the halls and then look at it through an investment filter that, you know, is uh, is pretty spectacular. What do you, you alluded to allude it a little bit, but what do you think makes Warren Buffett special? I think it's that. I think it's um, he's actually genuinely enthusiastic about the process and seeing growth and success. I think there is a huge misalignment in many um, investment professionals where they're going to get everyone's getting paid. Everyone's just trying to get paid. Whereas you know Warren still lives in his old house. He's not looking to get paid. He's looking for real growth and you know opportunity. And I think bringing that sense of um, you know, that sense of almost like wonder and like childlike enthusiasm for the possibilities of what things could be, like that's amazing. And frankly, going back to your example, any individual can get that, you know, just go deep into an area, get excited about it, learn everything you can about it and and take it from there. Is, is there any book that you give out to friends? Um, um, Peter Lynch's... Um, first book is I wouldn't say I give it out but I do recommend it a lot um, and I particularly love the story in it where he says his wife is a better investor than him because she would come and there's a great anecdote and this is obviously this book's from like the 80s but you know she would come home with bags from the limited and she'd be like you got to look at this store every it's amazing everyone's shopping there it's everywhere and he'd look at the stock and it's like yeah it's kind of doing nothing it's at like five dollars And then a year and a half later, he's like, you know what? That limited is right. I got in. I got in at 70. I think I got a good price. And she's like, yeah, no one shops there anymore. <laughs> so he was like, yeah, that is, um, you know, that is the the essence of investing once you know. So I don't really like advice, but if you could, like, give your younger self um, guidance on, on how to think about, you know, finance and investing and all these things, like, what would you say to yourself in terms of how you need to think about these things. So it's funny. I say I built Goldbean for my 25-year-old self, right? I wish this was around when I was 25 because I was, frankly, trading on, like, dial-up from Malaysia and it was generally terrible. But um, I would encourage myself to learn things I don't think I need to know now, right? So the concepts that seem irrelevant to me, the, the ideas that are clearly for someone more wealthy, the earlier you can learn those things, the more you can put them to work for yourself. So, I mean, it definitely is education first, but also, you know, get into the practice of, you, you know... You talk about university or you mean education about learning about investing in finance? Yeah, just, and I think learning in the way that makes more sense to you. Like, I'm, in a, I'm a very experiential learner, so... I like to talk to people, I like to listen, I like to watch, and I'll read a lot, but I, at the end of the day, I like to do, right, press the button, see what happens, right? Yeah. Um, so learning is one that sort of building the money muscles is two. 
I was never driven by, um, you know, sort of the outward markers of success. I don't need to have the fancy car and the big house. and. Um, but it's nice to have. Really nice to have, but I think there is something as you're in that early stage of your career where you do have to over-invest in yourself, just the outward markers of yourself to fit in for the job that you do. Um, I wish more people would talk about that, and especially for women. Like, guys, you know, you look great in a very well-cut suit that you can wear for the next five years. You're good, right? Whereas women have to spend a lot. Like, this costs a lot <laughs> to do the I hair know, and the yeah. makeup and the, all of this every, diff, every day, different yeah. stuff. It's hard. Right? So, um, I, can I, only imagine. <laughs> I wish there was a, a broader conversation. I wish I'd started having that conversation earlier with people who I work with because that was always the big aha uh-huh, when you do open up the how are you doing financially and you realize that people are basically working to maintain the image of success to, you know, it's this weird downward spiral of like, um, you know, I've got to work to fit in really hard. So then um, maybe one last question or two. I'd be curious to understand, how did you like know what you were uniquely good at doing and how did you invest in yourself? Hmm. So... I've always been very good at connecting the dots. Like I, you know, my going into advertising, living in within a very creative profession, um, drawing the dots in a creative way between where things are and the opportunity. And I think the um, that self knowledge when you, you know spending twenty years talking about how companies grow, like that's incredibly formative. Right? How do we get from where we are today? to beat the competition and grow in that direction. Um, and I think the real trigger for me was to start to talk to my clients. And I had, you know, amazing, you know, Fortune 50 and Fortune 100 clients all over the world. Start to talk to them as a shareholder instead of talking to them as a partner. And that was life-changing because when you can read a 10K or you can read an annual report, all of a sudden, you have a view of a company that is completely different to what the person over at the table is telling you. They're telling you our problem is X, but you know, reality, the problem's really Y. So, um, it was a much more. It was a great way to grow my career, um, but it was a really great way to grow my portfolio. So, and then, when you look to the future, how did you spot opportunities and you know, sort of re- realize, not only looked at it but realized the opportunity. So it was a very calculated risk to leave the industry I was in and doing very well. Um, as I said, I'd set out to run a Madison Avenue agency, and I did that. So okay, I was like, okay, now on to the next. I'd always wanted to have my own company. Um, but yeah, I think I had built those building blocks of risk over the years and you know, built my risk muscles and moving countries and leaping into new fields. Like It was very early days in digital. Um, but to get to what we're doing now, like that is a, a giant risk. Um, for me, it was around timing. You know, I have children. I wanted the kids to be in school, to be able to go, okay, now this is, that part of childhood is done. Now we can, you know, focus a little more on, on the business. Um, but as a, as a calculated risk, you know, building this business, I had to do it now while I still have road, you know, road, <laughs> Runway, runway, runway. <laughs> around, um, you know, being able to roll the dice on, 
you know, my own wealth as well as being able to potentially build something of, you know, real importance in the world. So I tend to um, observe that, you know, the finance world is mostly male-driven. Mm -hmm. But whenever I see, like, a woman in finance, she's always successful because there's something about the female perspective maybe. Um, and so, like, I'd love to, like, what, what do you think, like, being a woman empowers you to, like, um, you know, have a different perspective and really, um, you know, sort of change the game because, mm -hmm. you know, men look at things in a certain way and they forget a lot of things. And you, you were talking about how, you know, I just... I just put on a shirt and, and a blood. <laughs> Walk you know, out the door I, and you're good. <laughs> and I, I, I'm good, you know. But as a woman, it's not that easy. So, 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 how do you see yourself like maybe changing even the landscape uh, in the world of investing when it comes to like more diversity and women? So, as much as I've built a digital platform, I would love to be, you know, a guide for bringing more, even more mid-career women into the finance industry. And I think that's what's also desperately missing is people with an external perspective. I mean, one of the one of the people who encouraged me to do this business, and I had been ranting about it for a very long time, and she basically said, finance will only change when people from outside finance come in. And it was, you know, it was a pretty profound statement because once you've been within a 